Aloha, everyone. My name is Christina Laney Mitri, and welcome to Smart Living Hawaii's podcast, where we discuss smart homes and technology, sustainability, healthy lifestyles, and smart business. And today, we are going to continue our Sustainable Leader series. We are going to have a talk story with Indy Rishi Singh, and he will be discussing community development, cooperatives, and why regenerative civic engagement is so important to our communities today. Hi, Andy. Hey, Christina. Thanks for having me on here. Sustainably having me on here, right? Are we being sustainable right now? Yeah, right. I guess so, because you're not flying over here and I'm not flying over there. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we're sustainable. <laughs> and I ate healthy, all right? I made sure I'm eating healthy. I've been sustainably eating healthy, so. Yeah, we're keeping our carbon footprint down by using Zoom. If that, that's, that <laughs> Exactly, helps. there you go. Thanks <laughs> for having me. Indy is on the big island that is where he resides currently. He's not from there. We'll hear more about that later. Uh, but before we start, I did want to share, and I always do, uh, their quick bios. So Indy Rishi Singh, he is a well-being engineer and amateur social scientist. He's a co-founder of two cooperative businesses, Reimagining Education, Community Development, and Regenerative Civic Engagement. Indy's podcast, Political Hope with Indy Rishi Singh, explores hope in its various forms. And he also leads neuroplasticity-themed wellness workshops and retreats with Fortune 500 companies, provides burnout and resilient retreats plus workshops for healthcare workers, law enforcement, and activist organizations, schools, and more. So uh, without further ado, that's me. Welcome. That That's, is you. And you know what? what? That is a shorter, that is a much shorter one that I've seen. <laughs> but wait, hold on. Do I do all that stuff? Because I, I don't remember any of that, that. I don't remember doing any of that. Maybe I blacked out in the middle of doing all those things. Because you enjoy <laughs> life so much, it just flies by. <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, th thanks for sharing that. Actually, I, I would love to like comment on two things. One, I, I loved how you kind of had a word kind of flip. You were saying regenerative civic in, instead of engagement, it almost sounded like you were about to say engineering. And I thought to myself, like, that's that's actually cool because engineering, the whole idea of engineering, whether it doesn't matter what kind of engineer you are, the idea of engineering is taking things and making them better and studying them and being like, oh, that's that could be tweaked a little bit and be made better. Or if something fails, you don't get caught up in the failure. You're like, oh, we can improve it. How do we improve it? We tweak it. But like, do we do that with government? Do we do that with politics? Do we do that with policy? Do we do that? Like, do we actively engineer and participate in engineering those spaces? Or we just do we just keep acting in status quo? Like, is everybody just in status quo? Like, oh, that's the way it is. And it's always been the way that, you know, that you ever hear that, Christina? That's just the way it is. Yeah, um, all the time. <laughs> that's not engineering. That's not in the spirit of engineering. No, it's um just to be accepting what what you have. But I think for the most part, a lot of us in this space, we aren't accepting um what the status quo is, and we're here to make a difference. And change is key, right? So I would say. Um, so. Let me jump into your background. How about you share with us where you're from? originally where you're born and raised. I really love your story and 
if you can kind of do that first, it definitely lays the groundwork for your groundwork of what you do today. So, okay. I gotta, I gotta share first of all, who I come from, right? I think it's very important. You know, I think I've been learning that from the Hawaiian traditions and cultures as I've been spending time with more elders and, you know, um, just connecting with the community at every level, intergenerationally. And I've been seeing that it's important for us to think and contemplate and remember where we come from and the peoples we come from and what, how they live sustainably, how they lived um, regeneratively, how they also cultivated resilience. Um, the reason why we are here today is because somewhere our ancestors were resilient over and over again sometimes, you know, depending on what was going on. So I come from the the, the Sikh community. It's, a, the, it's actually the fifth largest religion in the world. Um, we wear beards and turbans, and it's from Punjab, India. So both my parents were immigrants. They actually left political and social um, uh, um, persecution. There was um, a, a genocide happening in the 80s against our people in India. So the Indian government, which were mostly Hindu, and there was, you know, a mixture of different races is Islamic, Hindu, and they were were killing Sikhs. And so my parents came out and left that and they were like, we want to give our kids an opportunity. Um, and my brother and I grew up with kind of also an understanding and a remembrance of this story. I mean, if you can see, we got swords in our culture. You know, we train in martial arts as kids, all boys and girls. We learn martial arts, but we also learn spiritual, emotional arts. We learn how to meditate when there's crazy stuff happening. We learn to be of service. We, I grew up making food and sharing it with homeless people. My, since I was born, you know, we were going to the temple to make food, to give it to anyone, regardless of religion, regardless of whatever healthy food. Um, we, you know, we practice our, the way, our way of connecting God, but we also create space for others to be able to, you know, um, freely and safely connect to God how they want to. And that's been a big practice of mine is connecting and, and noticing that, like, do we have spaces that are, that are uh, safe for women and children to practice however they want to practice getting to God? Like, do we have enough of those? And so being, being coming from the Sikh philosophy, from the Sikh perspective has really allowed, has really given me a compass to follow. Um, and that compass has allowed me also to, to be resilient in times of, you know, um, I don't know, I can't say disharmony, right? In our lives, we've, we've also experienced in our lives, like a 2008 market crash. We've experienced 2001, the 9-11. I mean, I'm a, I wear a turban and a beard. So imagine what was happening to all my people. We're nobody, there was no anti-hate marketing going on when the Sikhs were being attacked all over America. Some of, some of my uncles got killed. I, my best friend got shot and murdered at point blank range because somebody called him a terrorist and just shot him. And I was like, that was when I was 21. And I was like, what? Like, wait, we're not even terrorists, let alone Muslim. We're not even, that's not even the right religion. And so really, it's really guided me throughout the years to not be angry, but to actually courageously approach all of this ignorance that exists in the world, right? Mm -hmm. And to actually actually show up for my ancestors to be like, wait, wait, hold on, hold on one second. Like, what? Like, wait, hold on. Who is, who is standing up? Who is standing up to the corruption with courage, with curiosity, with resilience, with love? Who's doing that in the world? Like, who's actually like strategically standing up against the corruption and being like, no, we're not going to be corrupt. We're going to do something else. Who's doing it playfully and with love and with neuroplasticity? And I, I feel that the saints have always done that. I mean, I don't know. I think you're a Catholic or Christian. There's Christian, such a yeah. Christian. So there's such a canon of sainthood all around the world. But where are the saints today? Who's showing up in a saint? I'm here. 
So yeah, I mean, I'm I'm gonna say too, I'm no saint, right? I've got plenty of things in my plenty of skeleton in my closet, but who's pursuing that pers perspective? Like who's practicing how to be a saint or who's sharing it with others? How do we show up saint in with sainthood? And now for me, like when you talk about what I do now, I think that's my moral compass with whatever I do. If I'm in tech, I'm like, how do we bring the saint saintliness to tech? If I'm dealing with politics, how do we bring the saintliness to politics? If I'm doing like community building or regenerative farming, it's like, how do we be saintly with nature and with the soil and with the animals that exist under the under the soil, right? So I feel it's, it's right now, I, I, I gave you a whole runaround of who and what I am, but I think the context of the people I come from and my mom and my dad who, in, were, who lived, my dad passed away recently, but my mom and my dad both live with that those principles and they show up in the world with those principles and so me i just got to continue the legacy you know and and that legacy is one that i feel is missing all around the world because we are all just we're all just actually we're all just so scared and so we're not doing enough to actually make the difference that's going to affect seven generations forward you know if we're thinking about seven generations we got to be a little bit more courageous if we want to get there I don't think people are even thinking about seven generations, let alone their own offspring, if you oh, want to yeah. go oh, real. Yeah. So. Oh, yeah. By the way, Christina, if you go to India, if you ever go with me, you got to go to this place at the Golden Temple. It's like our Mecca. And it feeds 100,000 people a day for free. All the food is donated. All the work is volunteered. And there's a Golden Temple surrounded by water. And it's like epic because anybody can go eat there. Like any religion, like any caste, any economic, it's like always open 24 hours. Just How like do they weekend. serve that many meals a day? I mean, it's volunteering, the power of service, selfless right? service, like the idea of selfless we're, service. We're working on that at our church, right? You're, and we work on that at at Rotary. So, I mean. Oh, yeah, right. That's why I connect with Rotary because I'm like. Yeah, and I, that's right. why, like when you had mentioned that originally, and then I was like, service above self and I don't know if that's what you said and I was like oh you should be a Rotarian and ah. like, I am a Rotarian or I'm going to be or something and no um, we got the eco we got the eco club started I'm on the chair yeah, so, right here you're talking so about the selfish plug you know we just want to shout out for eco rotary um our eco club was one of the first ones out there for Rotary International um and then you are technically i guess like the third eco rotary third? club because cool. we have one on maui so there was okay. another e another rotary club on maui oh my god we gotta have a retreat we gotta have like an eco well, hawaii retreat hello there everybody's coming to you in may oh yeah convention okay let's go to we'll go hit up a farm or two we'll do some regenerative farming and go eat some yeah. lechis. The sure lechis I'm, gonna gonna I'm gonna i don't know if we're gonna make it christina the lechis will be popping and so delicious i've been i was on a regenerative farm with lechis. <laughs> um but anyhow so so yeah maui's they actually had a, a rotary club they changed their name and focus to an eco eco club just recently so we are planning to hopefully do something with maui Maybe if you uh, guys want to come over when we do a service project with them in Maui, like you guys can come over to Maui and do the project with us and eat oh, in Maui. Yes. Yes. And, yeah. and cool. for anybody listening, if you are in Hawaii, either on Maui or Oahu or the Big Island, and you are interested in Eco Rotary, let us know because we will get you connected. We have a ton of service projects all the time that are focused on the environment 
Um, we're also working on, everybody has their own mission and vision, but a lot of it is definitely focused on, I think our areas that we're pushing out, which by the way, international wise, they don't actually have specific focuses yet like distinguished you know um this guy but, this guy this guy by the way he just like looks so like i can't like so nonchalantly like this is like the best thing possible right here are you are you being sarcastic or serious i'm serious he's okay. like this is, cool. is so, john so he's so and suave, he actually you know? left um to go to london and do um architecture over there and I'm keeping my fingers crossed and praying for him to pass his architecture degree. I guess yeah. it is. It's a lot of tests, but everything he designs is like passive design and all this really cool, you know, sustainable cool. Um, build stuff that are just like, it's so amazing. Like the kinds of stuff with the green roofs and all this, you know, totally. like you can't even see it as it sits on the hills, you know? <laughs> totally. I love it. So anyways, so yeah. Um, Actually, I'm working on this now, but the focus that we have within our club is environment, food systems, clean energy, waste management, CO2 reduction, and climate change. Mm, okay. So I'm trying to see if we can solidify this. Maybe you guys might want to adopt this if you guys don't already have your... Well, I, I, I I can't I can't say anything uh, like as as the what is it like sunshine rules I need to have the other committee members <laughs> available <laughs> so that we could talk about this yeah because, for sure um but certainly I do feel like it's important that we start to come together not just to talk about and do think tanking around what the problems are but actually like leverage all of our connections and relationships and skills to actually like proactively address like for example one of the projects we're doing um, the, um, on the on the Big Island that, that the Eco Club is involved in is regenerating the, the swamplands, right? Mm -hmm. the, and so like that's been happening already. Plants and animals and fish are coming back, right? There's a Genki ball happening. That's awesome. We're doing a people's garden that's in the transitional housing space where we're teaching the folks that are coming out of homelessness or houselessness and they're transitioned to getting housing where they want to learn how to grow food. They want to learn how to sell. So we're actually going to grow food and they want to do this farmer's market at the transitional housing that they can also learn if some people don't want to grow but they want to learn how to sell and market that everybody can kind of get skill building around um food and also healthy food and organic food so um it's something that i feel like there's a lot lot possible but we're at least on the big island what i'm really surprised about is how much can happen so fast when people are just leaning in with like mm -hmm. their relationships and their resources. And they're not like, oh, I need to have my name. I need this. They're like not worried about, you know, whatever it is that people worry they're about. Self. They're worried about yeah. others, right? And I think that is what is either contributed to a lot of times your faith, right? With whatever, you know, religion that you're familiar with, or it's for a lot of people, it's Rotary, you know? Mm -hmm. And um, Rotary isn't a faith-based organization, but it does have similar values, I would say, as to my faith. And that's a big reason why I gravitated to it. So jumping into, let's see, if you can share, because I know that you were, you came from India and, you know, your history there, but just the story of your career change 
maybe that was oh, that was also very oh, interesting I, as well. I feel like when, when I feel like when you said you, you're from India, I have to, I have to yes, very yes, that is correct. I'm from India. Um, <laughs> gotta do the head, gotta do the head knob. Um, so yeah. Did you I, ever have an accent, or did you purposely try not to? <laughs> no, my 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 parents do, and my dad actually never like assimilated. Women always assimilate so much more than men do. My mom like is so fancy and modern while still being like a saint, you know, and still being from the farm. Um, but my, my dad always had an accent. Um, and, but I no I didn't have an accent, but I can really, I can do a good accent, you know? Where did but, you grow up? Uh, I grew up in, I grew up in Toronto and California. Oh, okay. Yep. 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 All right. But went to India every year and spent some years there after I left medical school. So you're asking about my career. Um, it, it, a lot of it, um, was in the direction of being a good Indian boy. And, you know, getting straight A's and being like, oh, I got to, you know, be in the sciences or I got to be a business person and make money. And obviously coming from a family that also came from a lot of systemic oppression. Um, it, there's always, you know, you see this with Jewish folks around the world. Anytime there's communities that are persecuted, uh, uh, what usually happens with those persecuted communities, when they do come out of that persecution, they're like, oh, we're going to create stability. And we're going to create like crazy amounts of stability, right? So um, my family is all about, yeah, they got to make the money and be... Um, be successful right and so I went to medical school and in medical school uh I started having like two things started happening one I had really healthy unhealthy habits and they didn't teach us healthy habits in medical school right it's like here don't sleep here's coffee here's Red Bull you know work your work your butt off and maybe people will get better or not but that's not your that's not your objective you know just get through your patients um and so uh, in medical school, I started being unhealthy and then also having a little bit of cognitive dissonance with the idea that I went into this like, oh, I'm going to make money, but I'm going to help people, right? I'm going to continue the legacy of my ancestors. I'm going to be of service. And the more I was in the space, the more I asked questions, the more I went from rotation or I went from like the classroom to rotations to being in the hospital, the more I saw we're not actually helping people be healthier, you know, and also, when I did try to be human and ask questions and care about my patients, I would get in trouble. When I did ask my my teachers, my you know the doctors and the scientists that were teaching us, hey, how do we solve this cancer? How do we solve this chronic illness? There was like, oh no, we don't. You just give this medication, and mm -hmm. it's going to be with people for life. And I'm like, that doesn't make sense. You know, by the way, I wasn't practicing Indian. I wasn't doing yoga or anything at that time. Right. I was like, I mean, I'm, I'm like, those are those hippies do that. Right. <laughs> I'm Indian. I'm like, the hippies do yoga and, and talk about colonization. Right. So I was like, I was like, all right, you know what? I'm going to, um, I'm going to, you know, I, I guess I was having cognitive dissonance. I'm like, this didn't feel good. And I started actually popping Vicodin pills, you know, while I was in medical school and I got an addiction, right? It was a way to numb myself. I didn't drink as much, right? I only drink on weekends and stuff. All the doctors and nurses are partying, right? <laughs> They're like, there's got to get, you got to do something about what you're facing all the time. I, I chose Vicodin. While I was in that space, I got really ill, right? And Nothing worked. I tried all the different medications. It was a chronic illness, IBS, chronic Crohn's disease. I mean, I was given like four different diagnoses, right? And I'm like, what the heck? I'm four different doctors. <laughs> I'm like, what the heck? And finally, I went to an Ayurvedic doctor. My mom was like, go see this Ayurvedic doctor. The Ayurvedic doctor spent like three hours with me, asked me all these questions. What did my mom eat? What did my family eat? What did, how, what's my lifestyle like? What do I care about? Like he like dove into not just my medical condition and the symptoms, but like further into that, who Your I lifestyle. am, yeah. my lifestyle, my people, where I come from, right? My intentions, wherever I want to go. Anyways, 
he gave me a, a regiment, a lifestyle regiment. And within three months, I was fully healthy, right? Talk about things that like, I just spoke to a, a brother right now who just was like, oh, I've been dealing with IBS and I can't get rid of it. I'm like, oh my gosh. And I once again thought, I was like, wow, like so many people probably are suffering and are shame, ashamed about their their chronic illness. But a lot of it can be dealt with through lifestyle changes that our doctors do not learn about or teach or support, you know, um, enough, enough doctors don't do that, right? There are some good ones out there. That being said, that led to me having a crazy, uh, deep, dark night of the abyss where I tried to kill myself. Yeah, that happened. And when that did happen, and I, and I came out of that, it was a actually it was during that, that it clicked, you know, I don't know if you, you are you, I don't know if you ever study like what happens when we get to near death, the near death experiences, what they call NDEs, right? Um, and there's actually a doctor who wrote a book about it. It's like fantastic, a neuroscientist. And, and I don't know, and even the Christian faith, right? There's like near death experiences where you have revelations when you like come close to death and you something happens, right? And for me, that realization was I got to get out of this. I got to get out no matter what. And when I get out of this, if I survive, I'm going to dedicate my life to my own well-being. Like I'm going to practice being healthy and well myself. And in that space of well-being pursuit, I'm whatever. But if, if maybe people will feel it rather than me like having to force it on anyone, right? Um, and that's where I'm at today, Christina. You know, ever since then, I've been studying the idea of well-being for myself. And whenever I can share any tools that I gain along the way, I share them. But I also try to be very um, creative about sharing it with the different communities. Like if I'm speaking to a community of refugees, I'm going to do it differently than I'm doing it with a Fortune 500 company with a bunch of suits. I'm going to communicate it differently. If I'm doing it now with doctors and nurses, I can speak to their level because I was there at one point. Or if I'm doing it with a bunch of houseless folk, I'm going to do it differently with them, right? So I, I change, or if I'm doing it with kids, basically it's really about articulating the idea of practicing well-being, right? And that's different for all of us. But mm -hmm. there's a way to practice it. So how do we practice it? Let's talk about it. That's that's, that's a fun exploration because now that I'm in Hawaii. I'm like, oh my gosh, the Hawaiians have their practice of well-being. And then there's all these communities, these sub-communities in in Hawaii too that are from around the world that are practicing well-being. I'm like, oh, I want to learn that too, you know. And being of service is a way of practicing well-being too, right, Christina? So it's sure. cool to just be pursuing well-being. But it definitely took me having to crash and burn. Like I had to be at the worst place to be able to start to go, to kind of go up the hill. And that happens to be the case for most people. I mean, they do have some, a lot of people have to hit rock bottom before they, it's what happens and it's, it sucks. <laughs> I mean, is there but any other way? they have a testimony afterwards. Well, is there any other way? I wonder, I mean, even if you're a mother, right? Like I, I can't ever imagine being a mother, but like, as, as anybody who like goes through this like incredible process of creating life it's not a pleasant always a pleasant process but like but yet at the same time look how beautiful it is like so what beauty doesn't come from some suffering you know for sure um let's see where are we at we are at community let's yeah. um from where you are where you are right now and what you do <clears throat> So basically, he is a person that goes around and talks about laughter and all kinds of things in order <laughs> to uh, stimulate the community in a positive way. And um, he does that in many different forms. Uh, but 
when I talk about community, I really want to talk today about what the history of community has been um, and how it's evolved to today, more of like the lack of human interaction, the fact that we have community, we have efficiencies, right? We as a as a society have done everything we could to be as efficient as we possibly can. And by doing that, we basically got rid of um, human interaction, right? Because <laughs> it's more efficient if you, you know, cut that out and you just automated. move to automated AI or you're doing automated or you're on the computer or you're doing chat automated. or even a phone. I mean, everything you could just start eliminating um, in human interaction, then you're not sitting here chit-chatting. <laughs> you're not sitting here doing all this extra stuff. It's like, quote unquote, waste of time to people, right? And then um, you get from point A to point B as fast as possible. But then, you know, in the process, you lose the human interaction. And, you know, we all need, what, four or five things. We need air. We need food. We need water. Um, shelter. Oh, shelter. Maybe not so much in Hawaii because the, the climate is so amazing, <laughs> mm -hmm. but we need love and community, right? So that love is non-existent without human interaction, <laughs> which we yeah, all I mean, see and, <laughs> and with you, COVID. And you, and you also make me like think about like how, um, or feel, I guess, the feeling is, it's more of a feeling of like how all the sustainability discussions, and I'm, I'm now like a fellow that's a part of some like um, reimagining re economies um, with, you know, some really big shots and stuff. And one of the things I'm noticing even in those spaces is the missing articulation of that sustainability, true sustainability also in should include love. Yeah. human connection and you can't like just be like focused on like oh we need to do carbon capture and like this capture and this thing like it's like it can't just be mechanical like we have to think about how love and connection is also a part of sustainability yeah because it's as much as we think we don't need it at the end of the day if you you need to hold on to somebody it can't just be yourself there's got to be something that you you know that you can associate with that is not yourself right. <laughs> at right. the end of the day if it's just one person i mean that's that's all but you don't want to have but you don't have too many multiple personalities though like you know like you also don't <laughs> <laughs> if you love yourself too much that might be too much you know and you know that's another issue today too right is like the whole loving yourself to the point of well, you can't love yourself if you're creating alter egos of yourself social yeah. in social media, right? Like that's not loving yourself. It's separate. It's actually disassociating. And that's it's, actually the problems yeah. of the inefficiencies of, of, of communication, especially social communication through technology is that it actually is not, uh, it's actually a disassociative practice. This is a mental, it's creating mental illness, literally. Yeah. Um, and, and so- yeah. Sure. And, and it's kind of that's kind of scary to say and think, but it's like true. And it's a part of it being scary is like, whoa, our kids and ourselves, we're doing it. Like we're practicing making ourselves mentally ill all the time, you know? Yeah. And so so why do we need to go out into nature more? Why do we got to shut stuff out and be in community and play music together or chant? our our really our spirituality with each other or or maybe um tune in to god in our different ways and share the different ways we connect with god those things man i'm telling you those things will have profound effects on rehabilitating us mm -hmm. when it comes to what is what social media is creating yeah and the other thing too is you know we grew up well you grew up in 
I'm a, was it a smaller town or was it a really big town or did you I still have that community growing I, up? I definitely, you... I, I was fortunate to have community because uh, the community we had was based on immigrants, right? Like, so my family didn't have any friends. I mean, we had our neighborhood, but like they didn't speak English. So a lot of people who were, you know, white bodied, they weren't really helpful, right? Like they were like more like, who are these like immigrants in our town, in our like neighborhood? But for us, we we started creating a temple, a Sikh temple in Fremont. And that was a place that every week, all the Sikh families and even the Hindu families, even the Buddhist families would come there as a sanctuary to be able to come and eat food and share food with each other, share spirituality, share community. Like it was, and you know, also babysit. Like sometimes I would get dropped there if my parents, you know, like, so it was also a space. So it was really about creating a space for people to come together and feel safe intergenerationally. Yeah, that was, and, that was my connecting point. And that's growing up for local people here. It's like, you know, I'm in my 40s. So when I was younger. No way. You know, no, get out of here. You, yes, I you, am. I feel like you're like I'm 43. Hawaii University student, I thought. Yeah, right. Um, so, you know, I grew up in Uanu. We had a regular neighborhood. We rode our bikes. We could stay out till 10 oh, o'clock yeah, at night, totally, you totally. know, by ourselves, very independent. Our parents just let us do whatever. They weren't really worried about us. We'd always come home when we needed to. It was like, well, we had free reign. We weren't sitting here worried about all this crazy shenanigans and, you know, human trafficking. And I mean, all this other horrible things that just happen to people today and kids today and teenagers today. Um, so, you know, let alone that and just how you deal with that. It's like, in addition to the AI and the, you know, efficiencies of our society that takes away human interaction. I, I, I call them inefficiencies. <laughs> right. I mean, it turns into that, right? Long term, long term wise, long term, if literally if three generations forward, we're not going to have a civilization. No, right. You know, it doesn't, totally. It's not efficient, you know? And so, you know, the third thing that I think about is that there's a whole generation underneath us that never had even the understanding of what community is right. and even what it looks like unless they did some research which right. they probably right. didn't so they right. they don't even know how to fabricate in their brains like what community looks like without studying it you right. know they didn't have it like it wasn't like something instilled in them when they were younger so then they can carry it on when they get to you know the age of raising kids and and how they're gonna formulate things with their kids and how they're gonna do it. They're, they're just creating their own ideas and well, yeah, a lot I mean, of the ideas are great but at the same time there's so much that they miss because they never experienced it before and right. those are the things that I feel I would love to bring bring back into communities and food being one of them, right? Um, we don't have we don't have food, that food. And I, I I feel what you're sharing is you know really important too. When we talk about children, you know, um, I you know as I've been sitting with with elders, Hawaiian elders, one of the things that they've been consistently saying it doesn't matter which one is speaking, they're always like speaking like create. And this is funny because it's also relevant for the Sikhs, right? In the Sikhi culture, it's also similar great spaces, no matter what you ask men, create spaces that are safe for women and children to thrive, to do what they want to do. Just create those spaces as men, like as a warrior, as a warrior, warrior, that's really important to create 
those spaces and are recreating those spaces. And when you do create those spaces, those spaces all of a sudden become community generators because, you know, not just do the children and the women there thrive, but when the children grow up, they're going to be like, wait, I want to create more of those for more of my own other community. Mind you, by the way, let me ask you a question, Christina. When did nuclear families start? Like, did all of our ancestors have nuclear families? Like just a hundred years ago, did any of our ancestors have nuclear families? Like where it's just a mom and dad, the kids are in the house and that's it. You have your one house, you're paying your mortgage, you know, and you have your kids and <laughs> you got to pay for the college. Like, I mean, is that, when was that? When did that come around existence? I think I want to say it was like when, once we started getting into civilization, I feel it happened because like for my dad, for example, he was born and raised in Texas and his whole family was on a farm in Arkansas and his dad and mom picked up and moved to Texas into the oil refineries. Mm. And, you know, once they did that, it was like you moved away from this community and that community of your family, it needed like you to pop out 10 kids and have everybody <laughs> working together to run the farm of like totally. two, 300 acres of land in order to survive and feed everybody. And you needed that many people to 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 run the village and to have enough food and it moved from you know them like going off in their own little unit to you know this this type of lifestyle and then getting food from grocery stores and cans and and I mean his parents died early like in their 50s or 60s of cancer you know yeah. and it has so much to do with the food that they ate and and where they were at in the, the oil soil. The soil. and you know eating eating processed cans, you know, all that kind of stuff. Like that's what my dad, you know, and, remembers. And, and mind you too, you know, one of the things I get really upset about is the supremacy of Western civilization, you know, especially sometimes I'm, I'm American, right. But like, we sometimes like really ignore other civilizations. Like it's kind of bad science to ignore facts. Right. And like, there's other civilizations that have existed and that are still existing, <laughs> you know, like India is a good example, right? Just one example, I'm from India, I'll tell you, it's still around, right? When you go back, <laughs> there's places that are still around and there's people who live to 100 to 120 all the time, right? And why do they have, like there's blue zones around the world. How is that, how have they been doing this for thousands of years? It's not, it's not rocket science. Like you, you know, there, you, you can just look at the examples and model it again, right? But what happens is when we start leaving the communities, right, in the community living and we stop, stop living sustainably with the earth and with the soil and the water and the air. And then on top of it, when we start, um, uh, uh, what's it called? Um, creating superficial love. Yeah. It's disconnecting, not, right? Not disconnecting, right. Then you start to see people dying earlier consistently. You start to see also people suffering more of their lives. Like we, Americans are some of the unhappiest in the world, right? Yet we all got our little apartments and we all got our little houses and we got our Everybody's got like a car. Like most of the world, people don't have that much. No, I mean, we're the wealthiest, right? Per capita. But we're unhappy and we're unhealthy. But we're the <laughs> most unhealthy. And, and mortality is going up and mortality rates are going. So it's like, wait a second. So, uh, you know, we need to start reevaluating community. And I, I don't know. I'm going to ask you a question, Christina, and maybe to your audience too. Who has lived? Have you lived in a community in your life so far? Like actual where there were like multiple people living in the same, not necessarily the same house, but like at least on the same property where like there's multiple people living multiple configurations. Like, have you done that in your life? Like when you say outside of your family, mm -hmm. 
like right like no and and that is what I've I feel really called to to design you know here in Hawaii and incorporate you know food as within that community growing um so it's there's like basically that food security for that community but by doing that right if you can get to that place then how you said with within your church and everything when you were growing up it's like they could babysit they you know there's there's multi-generational like living and you know you've got support from everybody it's like have you ever watched <laughs> sister wives that movie or that show <laughs> no no but i know like three or four wives and they have all have like six kids so they've got like 20 kids amongst each other and then there's like one husband like bless his heart like i don't know how like it sounds like a good but they idea. get a lot done but they get a lot done but they get a lot <laughs> done having four wives like can you imagine <laughs> But they get a lot in, done in America. You know? if, if you can, if you can figure that out, you'll get a lot done because there's collaboration. And like, I think that's where we're kind of, even when we're living like on top of each other and like, like when we don't know our neighbors, mind you, by the way, Christina, I will say something. This is going to be, this might be a triggering, but like when you don't know your neighbors, it affects your nervous system because you're constantly like, you don't realize it's subconscious, but you don't, you're constantly in fight or flight. Because you yeah. don't know what because they're doing. Because you don't know them or, yeah. I mean, what if I something live, happens to, what if something, building, Or what if something happens to you? What if something happens to your kids, right? You're like, you don't know if people are going to show up and support you. That's going to constantly cause a nervous system issue, like constantly. Or the fact that, you know, you don't know like the people in your building. Like I don't even, I can't even tell you. And, and I talk to a lot of people, but on my floor, there's a lot of singles on our right. floor and there's like maybe that's, what that's, eight units especially, and especially on, like, a, like a really high a floor right so on our building and everybody here i know one person's name i should know the other neighbor but i forget <laughs> he has like cats but i mean that's how i know the that cat guy the cat guy they can call him the cat guy he has cats and then this guy over here he doesn't have anything and nobody ever visits him and then this other guy same thing nobody ever visits him and you know this other person they cook a lot you know like that i mean that's horrible like this is all i know about the people and i'm a very community like kind of person but if they don't want to talk to me <laughs> they don't want to connect with me then there's really it's really difficult right so it's like when we go down to the pool and there's a lot of kids there and there's a lot of families and, and then we get integrated with the people that want to talk and want to socialize and so then I know that group of, they just don't happen to be ones on my floor right. but my point is is that I mean literally they're one of these guys could be in their apartment passed away and i would not know until we yeah. smell him or her yeah like, that's how that's how that, alone that, that's a, it seems and, and that's the same thing with know. real estate right with people buying houses the same thing people don't know each other they don't know how to communicate and build relationships anymore right that was used to be a thing you'd bring over pie right there was some social ability like there was thing there were there were there were habits of community that we kind of lost over the years and a part of us losing it is is we're all digesting fear porn all the time like we're not actually practicing going and showing up in a community and being vulnerable in a community and actually relying on each other and other people and showing up for other people like we don't do that enough right no we're and when you do what happens you you feel embarrassed because the other person is like ew stop talking to me <laughs> or like 
they make you feel uncomfortable for trying to be nice, right? Well, like it's wait, like that, you can't blame people either because we're being we're so much fear porn is coming at us. Like even you were sharing, right? There's like sex trafficking, right? But there's all kinds of stuff happening every direction. I can as bad as sex trafficking is, who's who's the worst perpetrators of it? Every leader that's in our community, even Catholic priests are doing stuff like that, right? So we we're not addressing actually the constant fear that's coming at us, right? And if you're not Play, like that's why I do neuroplasticity stuff and play stuff because if we're not addressing our fears, then actually we're just letting them get worse. Mm -hmm. Those actual things we're scared of, they're getting worse because we're not doing anything about them. We're like, all right, you know, it's going to get better by itself. <laughs> like, and it's not going to get better by itself. So, okay, let's, let's kind of swing. I'm, I'm curious because I know you brought this up before and I want to share this again about the idea of community, community housing and, and also talking about community cooperative housing and how cooperatives um, maybe not being attached to that word cooperative, because a lot of people kind of automatically assume things about it, but understand that cooperatives, number one, are very capitalistic. Like it's not something that you don't make money. There's billion dollar cooperatives out there, right? That's number one. And the second thing is thinking like, how do we do cooperative housing that is community-based, food-based, but also um, creates a, a generational wealth for mm -hmm. the people who don't necessarily start with generational wealth? Right, because that's a big caveat. There's people who've been, yes. you know, in Hawaii, people have gotten their land stolen, or they were taken from their lands to work in Hawaii. Right? There's all these complicated history in Hawaii of people, but we're not thinking about how do we create generational wealth when the land is so fertile and so abundant, and there's property that's fertile and abundant. But how do we create generational wealth for people when they don't start with it, so that we don't keep getting people from the mainland, or I don't like saying mainland, the continent coming. Or like Singapore or like Europe or, or um, Asia coming and buying property and not even living in Hawaii. Like they're not even on the property and they're living there. So how do we create stuff that actually create generational wealth? So I want to I want to put that in there, but I'm curious, what are you as a realtor and somebody who doesn't know too much about cooperative housing? What are your questions about it? Because it might be relevant to the folks listening too. Yeah. So I think as a realtor it's not something that comes to mind besides the fact that you sell affordable housing that the state mandates or the county's mandate. And I think that's the extent of what you could think of, of how to service, um, you know, communities that don't make as much money. And even at that, when you talk about affordable housing, reserved housing, workforce housing, it's still expensive to buy those properties. And, it's relative to, you know, somebody saying, hey, that's a good deal versus somebody who could really only afford, you know, rent or transitional housing or Section 8 housing. And like, that's it, you know. So, you know, we're, I'm in a place where I'm in my career where, yes, I know real estate can bring financial, you know, gain to whoever does it and does it well, but my heart always has goes out to the community and goes out to the local residents and if I can be there to help a local family you know get into that first home or even you know build wealth even if they are successful and they've done this like my auntie started off with nothing and she has numerous properties to date you know and now she has something to pass down for her legacy to her kids and her grandkids and those their kids are very fortunate to not have to have done it by themselves, right? And, you know, people are able to then 
you know, have and give funds to their kids so they can buy homes. But caveat, a lot of people caveat, don't have that. Well, and the and the caveat is, and you know, personally, I have you know, in, in relationship with nurses, in relationship with educators, I'm I'm an educator myself. I'll tell you, there's a reason I don't teach in any public school system. Like you cannot afford a house or anything if you're a teacher, if you're a nurse, if you're even though you're making money, you can't afford it. So if we, if our nurses, our doctors, if our doctors I can, but that's because they have the pharmaceutical connection. But like if the nurses and the teachers, the healers, the teachers, the farmers, right? If the people who want to make the food, if the people want to teach the kids, if the people who want to heal the people can't create generational wealth at this moment, we've got to rethink and reimagine what we're doing because they're the people who will keep the thing going like you yeah know, so. I mean we need it's funny because farming was you know our existence in the in the past and in community it was the hub of the community and the village and 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 that was the life right and that was the most important and it's got dumbed down to the fact that you know, nobody wants, wants to be a farmer. And even if you did want to, it's not even lucrative enough to do it. And yeah. here in Hawaii, even more so because the land costs so much. Unless so you even do if you had a passion for it, it's like a, it's like a, it's a dead end road, you know? And so um, that is another thing that we want to incorporate into a community is that the farmer has land to farm and that they can live in that community as with everybody else and they can do their job while everybody else does their other jobs you know and and you know when it comes to cooperatives i i mean i'm looking at this on a development standpoint of building out these types of homes that people can live in with a full-time farmer and you know the farmer is the one managing all the ag and all of the, the the food for the community so the rest of us can still do our jobs raise our kids and you know you know come and help the farm on their volunteer and, and free time but that it's not them depending on themselves and their individual families for making that food if they don't have the time to right so that right. it's that is sustainable for that community um so you know to be able to add a farm to some of the communities out here makes perfect sense, but that may not really always be the case, right? So then you right. could just like buy a $901 million property that has this plus a farm as an amenity would be nice, but that's not really the situation for everybody. And, you know, how can we still create this same concept for existing communities? How can we do this for people um, in a price range that will make sense? And that's yeah. where I feel like cooperatives um, play a huge role. Because if people already own their land and maybe they do a cooperative to buy out a piece of land that they're going to do a community garden for, right, yeah. for their community. And they hooey yeah. together on that property, but they also own their own, right? So there's just different ways that we have to be creative to think of ways to, to bring the food yeah. to communities. And I mean, one of them, it's, it's like yourself, right? You, you, how can you do this where the money can be divided and it's not so expensive? Like a million dollars per household is the median sales well, price. Well, there's, well, there's, there's, here in Oahu. there's, there's right. two there's two different perspectives on this and or there's many, many perspectives but at least for me what I'm noticing one I think it's very important to recognize that you know there, there's market and non-market right housing 
and like the difference between market versus non-market. So what you're talking about, because you're a realtor, you deal with market housing, right? Because like there's market housing, there's landlords, they take a cut. People need to understand that when you have market housing, sometimes the, the cost of the water, the cost of electricity, the cost of the mortgage, that's just non-market, right? And then you landlords add a significant chunk of profit onto that. And that's market housing. And they could they could adjust that to however much they want to make profit-wise, right? And this is one of the problems I have with landlords is because that's that's like asking for toxicity, right? I, I get it. It's a great way to make money for people who've got property, but it's not sustainable because if the community is poor, then you're, they're just going to keep getting more poor and you're not going to eventually have any tenants eventually that can afford it because you've just, you, you've canceled out your, 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 uh, your consumer base. So anyways, that's a whole economic thing we could talk about on the side that we're noticing, but what we need to focus on is when you talk about non-market, that's cooperative housing. And what that means is, is if you have a million dollar property, you can actually, like a lot of places around the world, Vienna is a great example, is now 60% non-market housing. So now because it's 60% non-market, it's more non-market housing than, than market housing, the market people are starting to bring their rates down. The housing costs are going down. Everything's going down because they're like, well, so you do, there, there is that thing that happens, right? When it gets- Supply and demand, yeah, for sure. But, but, with, but the thing with non-market is a lot of places around the world um, and uh, are getting support from local banks. The local credit union, the local banks are providing the loans for cooperative housing. So if we go to like a private bank for that, that's probably not the healthiest thing to do, right? But if we go to a local bank, they're like, yeah, we want to support the growth of our local economy. We want these local citizens to also put their money in our bank because they're now gonna be living here. So it's, it creates a circular economy for everybody, um, a regenerative economy, if you want to think about it that way. Whereas if you you know start to like look for getting money and loans and mortgages from these international banks, you know, number one, we already saw what's happening with these international banks, right? How is that working out? The second thing is um, we're not keeping the money in the community, right? It's not very hooey. It's not very aloha. It's not like supporting the local economy. Like, you know, like for all those even spiritual reasons, it's also... Like think about whether you're Muslim or Christian or Sikh or whatever you are, what is this interest game? You know, this idea, this it's actually against our religions, right? And so we're actually going against our principles and beliefs by by paying into these really toxic structures, economic structures. So could you share with us, I guess, some of the cooperatives that you're a part of and how you got started on this? Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm super fortunate. I as I I'm I've stumbled across two beautiful communities that some one of them reached out to me and they were like, "Hey, you know, we how do we support our community?" One community was the teacher community, right? The educator community. So we created an education co-op, um, which is called Cosmic Labyrinth, and that's made up. We're all teachers, and we continue to grow. Um, but we're all educators that are just so sick and tired of not being able to do what good educators do. Right. The, the, the current education system does not support social emotional learning. It doesn't support creative teachers and it doesn't support teachers who want to take care of the holistic person, because, you know, every person is also made up of their parents is also made up of their kids is also made up of the grandparents. How do we approach everybody collectively? How do we connect them to nature? How do we get them out in public parks or out on farms or out at the beach when we're teaching? Right. Because you could teach in those places, too. Um, so that's what we created that cooperative for. 
Um, and then the other cooperative is a is an engineering cooperative with a bunch of engineers, a bunch of computer programmers, um, engineers, electrical, computer, civil engineers, and we're trying to tackle the idea of making we're basically a GovTech company, which is focused on creating technology that improves the way we communicate with our government, our local government, and also the transparency of our local government. Because like we were just talking about earlier in this conversation, how there was, you know, there's a bill that's like, what, what was it? This bill is made up of, let me hold on, what is it? 239 oh. page document, right? Oh, yeah. So I don't think we mentioned that yet really quick since you're talking about it. Um, right now, as we speak, depending on when you listen to this podcast, is um, Bill 10, which is on the city level for Honolulu. And it's basically changing all of the land use ordinances that have not been changed over the past 30 years. So obviously a lot has happened in the last 30 years and things are very different than they were back then. And they're really visiting the way they had uses for land and how we can better it to our society today and our community right. today. So that being said, it's 239 pages and who has the time to do that unless you're getting paid you have some sort of incentive in doing it, right? Or you just have a lot of free time and you're really privileged, <laughs> you know? Like you're really- And privileged. you can read really fast. <laughs> you read really fast and also privileged. I mean, I've noticed this in Big Island that the people showing up at the city hall meetings, the planning committee meetings, it's usually like old people who own land, right? Like, and so it's not young people who are working their butts off. It's not the nurses. It's not the farmers. They're definitely not showing up at any of the meetings. In fact, I've heard that from local farmers, like, they can't even go to the because they make the meetings in the mornings and the farmers got to work on the farm in the mornings, but they make the they make the planning meetings and the city county council meetings in the middle of the day. So like we, we have a little bit of a problem with communication when it comes to government and the community. And so if there's a disconnection of communication there, that's going to create problems no matter what. Even, forget about corruption. Corruption will happen. But not just corruption, people just will make bad decisions because they don't they're not the community's not there. That being said, so our our company is focused on creating technology that makes it better. So we're talking about social media earlier. We're like thinking, how can social media be heart-centered? How can it be human-centered so that people are actually empowered and it's accessible? So a grandma or an 18-year-old. Either way, they can show up on our, our platforms and they can be like, oh, this is what's happening in the county. Oh, I care about education or I care about uh, uh, this or I care about whatever. And I'm, I care about healthcare improving. They can get involved in their local community in a meaningful way at the policy level, right? Because right now what you're talking about is policy and everything is about policy. Even when we talk about ecology and whatever, it's at the end of the day, policy drives everything. There's a reason why the corporations donate so much money to politicians and to campaigns because it's policy. But we're always getting mad at one person. We're always focusing all our attention and being angry at a scapegoat. But the policy actually drives everything. So if we can start to make policy a little bit more accessible to the people who care, right? Making it more possible for the farmers and the teachers and the healers to have a word and have, have a say at the table, that can actually have huge transformational effects. And we were talking about this policy right here. I, I'm showing up at the CDP meetings and the CDP was the community development plans in the Big Island were developed 15 years ago and they still haven't implemented like the things that were, they've worked really hard to create those things. And so what, why is that happening, Christina? When I show up at the meetings, there is nobody young there. Like I'm like the, I'm not even young. There's nobody in their twenties or thirties showing up at these meetings. So yeah. what do you think is going to happen? Who's deciding? 
the future? Obviously, the people that have the time, right? And that that they have, I mean, if you don't have a job and, you know, you're following up on all this stuff and it it's going to benefit you financially or whatever, then, of course, you're you're showing up. The and lawyers are showing up. By the way, Christina, the lawyers are showing up. I definitely see some lawyers in the audience. You know why? Because you know how, <laughs> how much they get paid to be there, right? <laughs> so something something about that, right? So, you know, so I, I feel like that, you know, the CDP, I, I want to bring that up, you know, strongly because one of the things I've been noticing going to these meetings too is that um, everybody has good intentions. Like everybody from the committee members to the planning staff to the council members, everybody has really good intentions. But what is that saying? The path to hell is paved with good intentions. The path to hell is paved with good intentions. You know, I, there's been a lot of genocides that have happened on this planet because people were doing the good thing, right? They were they were doing something good, right? And they killed a lot of people in that pursuit of goodness. And so I feel it's not about doing what's good. It's actually more about bringing everybody to, to giving everybody a voice using collective wisdom. Because the more voices, the more perspectives there are, then we're the, the middle of that is actually also going to create, everybody's going to be on board. So everybody's going to chip in once the decision is made. But right now what happens is a decision is made and there's always people who are not being heard. And so they're going to be upset. And you know- And it's not even, they're not even being heard. It's the people do, and I and I, I say this because I, I deal with a lot of different, um, different people in all different, you know, sectors of sustainability and they are driving it home in their sector very hard to push their initiatives and they're all really good for Hawaii and I and I support that part of it but you know if you're only in this box right only looking at your problems and what you need to accomplish to successfully make your sustainable initiative go through then you're like have blinders on to everybody else that you're gonna you know stomp on along the way and and then when someone else comes up to you and and says no that's not a good idea then it kind of you know puts a damper on you and then like you get upset you get angry and then all of a sudden two good people are then fighting against each other on something but but we need both of them right and we need both of their it, their sustainable initiatives to go through. Yeah. The only way to do that is to get everybody on in the stakeholders in the same room. People don't know who the stakeholders are. They don't realize that by doing the things that they do, the ramifications of what would happen in a different sector, right? right? And and so it's like playing devil's advocate for all of these other people. Like the real estate community that I'm in is, you know, on the outside, a lot of people, money driven, power, you know, all of this, and they have this mindset and is very negative, right? They've got nice watches. There's a lot of nice watches in the real right. estate community. <laughs> my most expensive watch. I'm just kidding. I'm not I'm I'm not talking about you, trust me. I have I have a lot of cousins. Oh, and but I have my my fake bling on it. Do you see? Oh, that? there you go. See, there you go. See, you're, not, I know, you're definitely real estate. Yeah. I get like five of those um on Amazon for <laughs> Um, but anyways, um, what I was trying to say was the fact that, you know, we, we are all like, 
it's like, I don't know, maybe it's because I'm interviewing all of these sectors and I'm hearing everybody's problems. And then I'm like connecting people. And, you know, in this real estate space that I'm in, it's like, I know what we're battling. And, you know, Hot and Lugar Realtors, HER, we have like NER to support us when mm. there's something big that's coming down the pike. So there is money that can support when there is a big thing that we need to push against. Right. And there is val valid reason when, I mean, I, I just want to give credit to Home Board of Realtors and what they do at HAR because there is a lot of valid reasons as to why they push for something or oppose something. Right. And it just, I just, I just wish that people are a little bit more open-minded and hear us out sometimes. And, um, and then I can, you know, then take it back. Um, and so now I'm on a lot of sustainable task force and, um, and on their, on the ledge side, and I play devil's advocate with them so they can see it from a realtor's perspective, because at the end of the day, you want the realtors to be on board with the things that you're doing. So you guys can come to a compromise. Otherwise you're battling back and forth. And if they have more money than a small nonprofit, like, you're just gonna, you're never going to win. Right. And, <laughs> so and, like, and also ask, ask, even ask political candidates, or if you're involved in any way in that, in the way of shaping policy. Um, also, you want to be freaking with the real estate organizations because they also will destroy you. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, I mean, I can vouch for the people that are in this space. They are really good people. And the people that, that they, a lot of these people and everybody, they donate their time and hours, countless hours to the board. Like, I mean, I've, I've paid my dues, but I mean, some of these people have, they're my parents, my mom's age and have been doing it ever since like younger than me and the amount of time that they devote into the community and all that they do within their community is amazing. Like right. I just, they never get enough credit for it. And I just want to like say, you know, give us a chance. And we are really genuine people. Like we do want to look um, for the solutions for Hawaii and the local residents. And so, you know, also, also sharing with us your problems, right? Because right. there's a lot that we may not see. Right. And I see things very differently now that I have a sustainable hat and a realtor hat. Like right. I see both sides, you know, and I try to merge the two to come to a balance, whereas um, each side doesn't necessarily do that. This is also why the idea of cooperative or cooperation is very important, right? Like actually practicing it more because a part of practicing it is bringing in all the different stakeholders, all the different skills, all the different perspectives of knowledge and wisdom and bringing it together cooperatively to solve actually some really serious problems. Like housing is a, a right, a human right, and we're not addressing it fast enough, right? And by the way, that's going to affect all of us because violence is going to go up. If people don't have homes, they don't have money, they don't have resources, who's going to also, doesn't even have money. How much of a, how high of a fence do you want to build, right? For your home? Is that even fun to be like fenced off? Like You can't even more... build over six feet, so legally. <laughs> but so, 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 you know, it's something for all of us to start to lean into is to be more cooperative, but also I feel the power of being cooperative is also that we start to lean into new ideas. And you, you brought up some of the older folks and I have like, listen, I have gurus and mentors that are in their 80s and 90s. Okay. I, I'm all about it. Right. I'm all about like respecting the elders. Like I'm Indian. Okay. We touch our elders feet. Right. Every time we see them, I'm all about that. At the same time, some of our elders, we need to, uh, we don't need to convince them, but we do need to start showing up in our own way to understand that things have changed from when they were 
doing stuff to now. And so we need to think that seven generations forward because some of them weren't, right? And they made choices and decisions that weren't seven generational decisions. And that's okay. Like we all do different things in different spaces, but right now we've got to be creative. Like we've got to be innovative, right? And we've got to be really adaptable because nature is adaptable and we're just trying to copy nature, right? Right here. Even we're talking about, we're talking about people staying in their lane. That's not natural. Like you look at like, a, a, you look at any garden or uh, or a, a farm or a forest, um, it, it needs to be diverse, like it, it to thrive. Like it, if there's a storm, the diversity will help it. If there is a parasite, the diversity will help it. If there's a problem like a drought, the diversity will help it. But if it's not diverse, boom, that's gonna turn into a desert. It's gonna turn into something that's not thriving. It's gonna turn into something that there's gonna be extinction of species mm -hmm. in that area, right? So we also are the same. We're made, we're literally an ecosystem. Our body has microbiome and cells and all kinds of things. And we're, we are also an ecosystem. We're also existing with other people in an ecosystem. So we need to also be diverse in our thinking, diverse in our being, diverse in our faith, diverse in our everything, right? Our philosophies, because that's gonna create resilience. Um, and I feel that's also the idea of the rainbow warrior, right? Like I, one of the elders I spoke to a couple of weeks ago was like, look, we're calling in all the people from different, uh, Hawaii is a really special place. We're calling in all the people who are like brilliant from around the world. And now we need to bring that brilliance together so that we can tackle these problems and make Hawaii an example, actually, so that the rest of the world is like, that's how we can, we can actually do it our way, but like they did here, you mm -hmm. know, wherever here is. Right. Whether here is Texas or it's California or it's Costa Rica or it's South America or it's Africa. Like, what if they'll look at Hawaii? They'll be like, dang, Christina, look at how they did. Look what they did in Hawaii, like how they made it sustainable. Right. Oh, my gosh. What's possible? Yeah. And that's that's like the key. Right. Like is to find a way to build that here. And we are fortunate to have this amazing weather. Um, and, you know, what we have here, it, you know, I know that we are surrounded by water, which makes it very difficult to get things in. Um, but if we can live off of the land and do everything without depending on outside, it does definitely show that if we could do it, then the world could easily do it, right? Like, it's kind okay. of like a great pilot we could be a great pilot for the rest of the world and um that's that's kind of the big thing that i did want to cover in regards to co-ops um i guess how does how does somebody get one started like what what did you guys do to get things going on a co-op is it just like starting on your own business and you just like, how does it work with everybody and what they agree to? And what if someone wants out? You know, I mean, those, oh, yeah. I think like a lot of people think about that. It's like, we're at this age or this generation where, I mean, nobody really trusts people, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, who yeah. do you trust, right? Talk, about, talk like, about community, right? You know, and it's like, you think you know somebody and you realize you didn't really know them, right? Or you, you know, people get into business with people all the time and they get burnt out, burnt from it, right? And it's like, you're just like, how could I even consider like throwing my funds, my all my money into this? It's like, I'd rather buy. And it's been this whole like me, me, me thing, you know? And it's like, I got to do this on my own. This is my house. This is my space. This is my yard. You know, oh, it's, 
your fence is encroaching on my property. You know, it's like, you know what I mean? And it's, and it's like to this place where the, the sharing and the, you know, faith in others and trusting is kind of not really there anymore. How do you build that to make Cult that? Well, that I mean, what you're talking about is culture, right? And like, if we have a culture where we don't trust our own family members, let alone the people, our neighbors or the people in our communities, you know, then that's culture, right? And good luck with that culture. Let's see how long that lasts. But the cultures that that survive and thrive and that are resilient are the ones that trust each other, that, that actually perform what the human nervous system is designed for. Like our brain, our nervous system is actually altruistic. Like we thrive in community. We thrive, like literally they've tested happiness around the world. The happiest communities in the world are not the richest communities. They're the ones that are they trust each other. They have people in the community trust each other. And some of them are poor. They're like in like, you know, <laughs> literally in shanty towns and their people are happy because there's trust in the community. That being said, um, cooperatives, I mean, they, the in, there's infinite ways they can exist. I will share that one of our cooperatives, the, the, edu the engineering one, we, we had a couple of people that decided to leave the cooperative, right? And I have never experienced in my life a transition that was as positive and loving and heart-centered. <laughs> Every time I've been a part of, or I've watched other people have businesses where people separate, there's like a lot of drama. It's a lot of issues. It's a lot of paperwork, lawsuits. For us, it was like, oh, like we had a meeting. We always were having meetings. We we're always having discussions about how we're feeling, what's going on in our lives, how is our families. It, our meetings were always about like, the business, right? It was also about the culture of connection and trust and love. And so when they were not, they were having to transition in their lives towards other things that were important. One of them just had a baby, first baby. One of them was going through a tough divorce. We're like, all right, we're going to support, you know, that's great. Like here, do you need money? Like to do that. And we like created, we actually took a bunch of our funds and, and gave money to both of them, right? On their exits, right? Because like, we're like, yeah, we, want you guys to be fine and they're like oh we want to still come back and help out where we can and we want to give some insight but we don't want you to get paid we're just going to support because we believe in this and now we've gotten new people and, and we have interns and so you know uh, that's just an example of how like creating a cooperative and actually creating a culture of cooperation that's actually more important than anything so talking about cooperative housing if let's say uh, let's say right now people want to listen to the who are listening to this are like oh i want to start a cooperative housing project that has a farm, that has a space for healing, that has a space for education in my community. Okay, you know what? The best way is to meet every week, whether it's in person or virtually or both. Meet every week and start to build a culture where every time you meet, maybe you're sharing bread, you're breaking bread with each other, you're sharing food, you're sharing music with each other, but then you're also talking towards getting a property or looking for properties together or maybe starting to bring in a realtor like you christina or bringing in on some nonprofits or bringing in some regenerative farming nonprofits that are into that and being like hey how do we bring in all these different resources and people we could weekly bring in somebody who can give us more insight right but really it's about building a culture where you're meeting regularly because gathering at the end of the day christina gathering is a spirituality that we need that's a healing that's actually the healing space that we all need is to gather right it doesn't matter how you gather but just let's gather right and that's how you build culture too is by gathering um you don't have to just gather where your your work makes you gather you can also gather in a place of where you can go what's the vision of yourself and your community what's the vision for your your grandchildren what's the vision for your your neighbor's grandchildren right like starting yeah. to build vision around the future well we are way over time i like looked at my watch and i was like holy cow <laughs> we 
we have to go. But um, I wanted to wrap things up. Um, I think I'm going to have to have you on again to talk about neuroplasticity because I really <laughs> want to share that um, on a separate note because we didn't even touch on that. But before we jump off, can you please share with everybody how they can reach you? What's the best way to reach you? Um, by doing something good for somebody and not taking any credit for it. Selflessly serving. <laughs> and, I'll, and I'll show up and I'll join you, right? If you're selflessly <laughs> serving. Um, as much as I'm joking, I'm totally serious. If people no, are- No, yeah. Doing, um, okay, pay it forward. <laughs> but how do they actually talk to you? Because you're so cool and everybody's going to want to be your friend now. Well, I, I really encourage people just to please, like if you're seeking a little bit of hope, a dose of hope, just check out my podcast, Political Hope with Indy Rishi Singh. And just like go look through any of those episodes and whatever resonates, go check them out, please. I think I just like, like hope. And like, if it resonates, please share with me, connect me, look me up on Google. You'll find a different bunch of different ways. But I feel one of the easiest ways is LinkedIn. Like find me, Indy Rishi Singh on LinkedIn and then reach out that way. Another way is Instagram. I'm Tickle Singh, like Tickle, 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 Tickle. So Tickle Singh, um, Singh, S-I-N-G-H, uh, Tickle underscore Singh. And, and you can uh, follow whatever me, whatever that stuff is. But I try to share what's going on and what's happening in my world as much as I can there. Also, I have to share, I don't share everything, Christina. Like, you know that you can't, if it's, it's not selfless service, if you're, then wanting people to see what you're doing, <laughs> you know. So a lot of the a lot of the stuff I do, I don't share. So I encourage people to reach out to me if you want to be involved in any sort of um, service related stuff or travel and be of service. Um, those are things that I really care about. Awesome. Well, thank you guys. Thank you for listening well over an hour. Um, but I think that wraps everything up. Um, until next time, just uh, enjoy all of the podcasts that he has along with our future ones. Thank you so much, Enzi. I really appreciate it. And I one day hope to meet you in person very soon. Yeah, likewise. And thank <laughs> All you right, so mahalo. Bye, mahalo. everybody. Thank you. Stop recording. Yep. <laughs> <laughs>